Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Just a quick shout out to Daniel Smith for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash death dying and other things. Any little bit helps. Now on to the show. I swear, for the last, well, what has it been now? Five months? Every day sure has seemed like Groundhog's Day. Every day looks the same. Every day plays out the same. It's tough to keep your head on straight when the days start to bleed together. Last month I talked about how much the apocalyptic tone of everyday life is starting to weigh on me. And it still is, that's for sure. But writing this story is helping. I'm having a lot of fun writing this one, y'all. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, the second part of a story about a man on a journey for an answer. In The Ghosts of the World, Part 2, A Man Contends with an Injury. Death and Dying, the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. stood outside the gates of Carryville in the early afternoon. Exhausted from lack of sleep, dirty from riding through the night, I wanted a bath and a warm bed, but knew I would not get them here. I expected to be turned away. It's dangerous to let strangers into your community. They are a bulwark against the earth and its malevolence, and letting someone in is a crack in your carefully maintained barrier. A stranger could be harmless, could be a person who, despite overwhelming odds, had stumbled onto your community looking for a home. Or the stranger could be a trick, could be the planet sending a spy, could be a monster in disguise 
could be a ghost. You could never be sure. So, yes, I expected to be turned away. We had to do it several times when I was a boy. I was eight years old when a boy roughly my age showed up at the gate. Mary was on watch and was the one to have to do it, but a crowd gathered as the boy wailed and sobbed and pounded on the corrugated steel, begging to be saved. But Mary stood firm, and the crowd applauded her. My grandfather, who turned to see my face as we sent the boy away back into the world to be consumed by ghosts, took me aside. He knelt down and looked me in the eyes like he always did when he had something important to tell me. I don't like doing it either, he said, but the world has made itself clear. It wants us dead and isn't above cheating to kill us. I expected to be turned away at the Carryville gates, but I didn't expect their complete unwillingness to barter. I have books, I said to an unseen guard on the other side of Carryville's gate. What good are books to us? Can you eat books? No, but, but nothing. Please, I said, I'm running out of food and just need a few supplies. A few days worth of rations. I'm only going to say this once, the guard said. Get out of here before we start shooting. I had veered off the highway just after skirting around Carryville and headed for the tree line. It was a calculated risk to cross the rolling plains now instead of in a few days when I had planned to. I had lost the ghosts for the time being, but could only hope that I remained hidden for any lengthy period of time. They would find me eventually, because the ghosts always found travelers. Long grass brushed June's chest and the bottoms of my boots as we plodded along. Subterranean creatures, rabbits maybe, or groundhogs, or whatever the world had changed them into, or tunnels in the soil. And after only a few lumbering steps, June's right hoof punched through the surface and into a burrow of some sort. A few more steps and it happened again. And after several minutes of difficulty like this, I hopped off June's back, took her bridle in my hand, and led her across the field. I stepped lightly with my boots, searching the ground ahead of us for weak points and stamping into them as we found them, firming the ground up enough for June to patter across without much difficulty. This slowed our already lengthy time on the open field to an absolute crawl. And after only an hour, my worry about this specific stretch of the journey came true. A single bird flew overhead. It had been a very long time since I had seen a bird. My attention rose and followed it across the dirty green sky. As a result, I did not give my next step the attention it deserved, and my foot, like June's hooves, 
punched through the surface of the soil. This particular hole in the ground was deeper than the others. My entire boot fell into it, past my ankle, and then to my mid-shin, before I stopped my descent. Before I could steady myself and pull my leg out, something in the ground grabbed my foot around the ankle and held tight. Inch by inch, whatever had seized my foot muscled me further into the ground. I steadied myself, felt around with my other foot for solid ground, and when I found it, pushed with all I had in me. But the struggle wasn't enough. Tugged further into the ground, I grunted, then felt a searing pain on the top of my foot. Somehow, I had still held on to June's bridle, and having a moment of clarity, swung my other hand up to grasp it as well. I cried out, and June recognized my stress. She backed up slowly, steadily, and inch by excruciating inch, pulled my leg out of the hole, and revealed the horror assaulting me. The arm of some massive thing had seized my leg, and even now refused to let it go. It had wrapped around my ankle several times before ripping open the top of my leather boot and plunging some sort of mouth into my flesh. Giving up even an ounce of my resistance meant it would begin to pull me back under the ground. It knifed further into my foot, shoving some probe through the top of my foot, through my ankle, and up into my calf. I threw my head up. The green sky filled my vision, and I nearly lost consciousness. I screamed in pain, managed to find my mind, and remembered the knife in my belt. The terrible arm put up little resistance to my blade. I sliced right through, and like a rubber band, the part that was not attached to my leg recoiled back under the ground. Within minutes, the end of that arm, coiled around my ankle, had hardened into stone. I crawled across the field until I had found a small patch of ground where the grasses weren't as long. I hoisted myself up and retrieved my pack from June's saddle, and then began rummaging through it. The thing I wanted, and to be honest, needed in that moment, was damn near the bottom of my bag. But I found it. A small hammer and several old pittens my grandfather had handed down to me, as well as a small medical kit with cotton bandages and a needle and thread, among other things. I placed the knife edge of the pitten against the hardened arm, braced myself, and struck it. An immense electric pulse shot up my leg, through my spine, and into my skull. All the muscles in my body seized. It was one of the most painful things I had ever experienced in my life, and the process had just begun. The vibrations bounding through my body subsided, leaving a slight tingle in the back of my teeth. I placed the pitten back against the remnant of the tendril, braced myself yet again, and struck harder. I threw myself against the ground. Tears streamed down my cheeks, and my teeth creaked and groaned from the force of my clenching. I tried my best to keep my suffering to a low moan, 
trying to avoid any loud noises that might attract more attention. When this wave of agony had subsided, I took off my belt and bit down hard. With the pitten back in position, I clenched my jaw against my belt and swung as hard as I could. I felt time expand. Inch by inch, the pain shot up my leg and smashed, shattered, and shredded my leg. My vision went black. I thought that when I finally came around, my leg would be gone. I gasped, eyes focused on the sky for what felt like hours before the swirling green and brown and purple sky had come back into focus. I waited a long time before moving. When I finally sat up, I surveyed the state of my leg. The arm was shattered, falling away from my ankle, but something worse remained. That probe, that proboscis, that fleshy straw that this creature had forced into my body and up my leg remained, and it had hardened into stone as well. I let out a murmur, unsure if what I was seeing was even real anymore. I remembered my grandfather's stories of the world playing tricks, but my pain was real, and it grounded me into the moment. I grabbed hold of the end of that stone stick. My breathing grew ragged and earnest. I took a deep breath in, and as I breathed out, I slid the needle out of my leg by half an inch. I threw my head to the side and threw up into the grass, then laid motionless for several hours. June nudged consciousness back into my body. The searing in my leg had only gotten worse, and I feared that if I didn't soon remove that spear from my calf and sanitize the wound, the infection would be beyond my skill to heal if it wasn't already. I knew I needed to remove that long needle as straight as I could or risk further damage to my already mangled leg, but I couldn't pull on the thing with my fingers without bending my leg up toward my chest. I looked up at June, looking down at me and probably wondering if I was dead. I sat up and took another look at the wound. About two inches of the thing stuck out from my leg. Blood oozed from all sides like honey thick and on its way towards coagulating fully. If I didn't know the reality of the situation, it might have looked to me like my fibula had snapped and punched its way through the muscle and skin. I next turned my attention to the supplies in the small medical kit I had dropped when I passed out. A small scissors, lots of bandages, a needle and thread, a bottle of grain alcohol. None of that, of course, would help. I slid my body gingerly over the ground to my pack, lying open nearby, and inside I found what I was looking for, a length of cord, a simple implement for my simple idea. I tied one end of the cord around that protruding menace. Even this sent ripples of pain up my spine and into my brain, but I took many breaks and eventually tied the cord tight. Next, I slid over to June and tied the other end of the cord around her leg. I slid away from the horse, ridding the cord of any slack. 
I took up the shotgun and prepared to shoot it into the air, hopefully spooking June forward and pulling the thing out in one fell swoop. And then I paused. If this thing had hit any major blood vessels on its trip upward, pulling it out would be a death sentence. And if it didn't, pulling it out in this violent manner might hit one of those vessels anyway. But I couldn't leave it in. I couldn't leave it in. I untied the cord. If I was going to gamble with my life, it would be in a much more controlled manner. My thought process was simple. I was no doctor, but I wagered that if I hadn't yet bled to death, the thing probably hadn't severed any large arteries or veins. But like I said, I was no doctor. I built a small fire with dried brush and twigs and tied the handle of my knife onto a long stick. Then I rested the blade in the fire. I watched the flames lick the steel for a moment and then turned my attention back to the massive barb jutting out of my leg. I threw some of the grain alcohol down the back of my throat and shoved my belt back between my teeth. I grabbed hold of the horrible thing protruding from my leg and slid it out, inch by excruciating inch. Tears rolled down my cheeks. If my belt hadn't been in my mouth, my teeth would have absolutely shattered from the strain. I tried with everything I had to keep my vocalizations to a low grunt. I wanted more than anything to scream. I stopped after I had slid three inches out. Sweat poured down my forehead and into my eyes and I had to use my sleeve to wipe my brow clean. I buckled down once more and pulled the last three inches out of the wound. I breathed a quick sigh as several tablespoons of blood flooded out of the wound, but then stopped. I may have been in the clear. I dumped most of the bottle of grain alcohol over this now open wound and then fished my knife out of the fire, pressing the blade into the wound before it had a chance to cool even a degree. This proved to be too much, and I let out a pained howl. When the wound had sufficiently scalded, I dumped the rest of the alcohol over the wound and then laid silent for several long minutes, waiting for the telltale screech of a ghost. When none came, I wrapped the wound with clean bandages and then immediately fell asleep. My leg was damn near immobile the next morning. The thing had swelled up to comic proportions, and I had awoken to find the slightest movement shot unbearable pain screeching up my body. In an effort to combat that, I took the stick I had tied my knife to the previous day, removed the knife, and then whittled any rough portions down. Then I built another small fire, sterilized the blade in it, and made a small incision to release the monstrous pressure under my skin. Bloody pus poured out of the small cut, but I immediately felt some small relief. I then tied that stick tightly to my leg as a splint and rewrapped the entire leg with fresh bandages. 
The blood at this point was minimal from the wound itself, the cauterizing seemingly doing what it was supposed to, and all I had to do now was hope my body could stave off what was surely to become a massive infection. I spent the morning laying in the grass, watching the pink and purple clouds drift by me, and I realized that I had not given myself a moment to rest since I had left my community. A breeze rustled the foliage and tickled my cheeks while June ambled around me, munching on any tender grasses she could find. I laid there for hours. I grabbed a book from my pack and read and watched the sun push past its highest mark in the sky and on into the afternoon. I decided late in the afternoon that I wouldn't do any traveling that day. I had earned it. By the time I got a fire going that night, the cold was unbearable, and I was shivering heavily not only from the chill wind, but also the constant pain of my mangled leg. Crawling over to June and hobbling up on one foot, I wrapped her in a blanket and tied her close to the fire, then did a mental inventory of how much fuel I had managed to gather that afternoon and if it would carry me through to the next morning. There wasn't a question of if I could survive if the fire died halfway through the night. I couldn't. Not with the way the weather was turning. And so I wrapped as many fabrics as I was carrying and dragged my injured foot around the immediate vicinity, gathering sticks and twigs and bundles of brush. I would have to be diligent that night and sleep in small spurts to avoid the fire going out and June and I freezing to death. And that's exactly what I did. Sleeping for 20 or 30 minutes at a time, let me get a modicum of rest, but also keep the fire going. It was early morning, sometime around 3 a.m., when I awoke to feed the fire and found the hills around me eerily silent. The wind had died or probably more likely been killed by the earth. I heard noises from great distances away, the howling of beasts, and yes, even the telltale shriek of ghosts. I fed my fire and intended to listen for a while, listen for the sounds closing in around me or the sudden uproar of a villain in my midst, and to be sure they were closing in The shrieks of the ghosts of the world grew in both frequency and proximity. I pushed myself up onto my feet and peered into the distance. Very far away, in the direction I had come, I could see the warm and inviting glow of Carryville. Somewhat to the left of Carryville, and much closer, I saw the faint, sickly green glow of ghosts. Impossible to tell how many were tracking me, I didn't wait to find out. I gathered my belongings into my pack, pulled myself up onto June, and rode off into the night, toward the tree line of Clear Pine Forest.
This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Busty. The story, The Ghosts of the World, was written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Busty. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to this never-ending pandemic. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out all the other shows. They're great. New episodes the second Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. Stay out of the shadows.